Well, good morning again. In our second week of rejoicing in Christ. Uh, before we go any further, why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, uh, this morning we talk uh, and hear again on something that is very large, Lord. Um, in some ways, uh, though Christ is becoming man and becoming very knowable, it is inconceivable that you would become man. Uh, Lord, that level, that depth of love expressed to us uh, in the work that you're doing. And Father, we just pray this morning um, as we seek to look and see and delight in your Son and the work that you are doing in this world, uh, Lord, to put you in your proper place in our lives and in our minds. Heavenly Father, that uh, as we hear a great deal of information, uh, Father, just something would stand out, would sink into our hearts, something about you, um, that we wouldn't just hear information, Lord, but that uh, we, would, we would see something of you that our relationship with you, that personal one that we have, have and that you've given to us, Lord, would grow and deepen. And, uh, and Father, that we would find uh, a time and a place to be able to rejoice and just give thanks for who you are and what you've done. Um, Lord, forgetting ourselves, uh, forgetting uh, the, the joys that we've turned to in the past. And Lord, overcome with the knowledge of who you are so that like Paul uh, everything else would be considered as rubbish in comparison to you Uh, in Jesus name we pray Amen this is our second week of going through the series Rejoicing in Christ Uh, we as human beings are all created to rejoice in him that's what we heard last week And Michael Reeves, uh, from his book, Rejoicing in Christ, had a phrase that I think I'll repeat every week uh, while we're doing this series. And it's this, that Jesus has satisfied the mind and heart of the infinite God for eternity. If the Father can be infinitely and eternally satisfied in him, then he must be overwhelmingly all-sufficient for us. And that's why we do this study. To look at him. Last week, we quickly, and it was very quick, looked at the deity of Jesus. And I trust that something of that word uh, stuck with you during the week and you're able to reflect and rejoice in a knowledge of Jesus as God. But this week, we are looking at Jesus' humanity, the other piece or other side of the coin. If, as we discussed last week, rejoicing in Christ requires that we grasp or at least attempt to have an understanding or a grasp of his transcendent and his imminent nature, then just as we addressed last week in his transcendent nature when speaking of his deity, this week we speak of his imminent nature in his humanity. For it's in his humanity as we will see, that he is just like us, entirely knowable. 
bar the presence of sin. Yet, through his humanity, uh, though his humanity is knowable, the action of the Lord of earth humbling himself to become just like us is incomprehensible. Jesus becoming human is called a term that you are probably all very familiar with, the incarnation. It's a Latin word which means becoming flesh. It is, as Bernard Clairvaux, who was known in history as the honey-flowing doctor of the 12th century, he called the incarnation the kiss of God because it's at the incarnation where all that we spoke of last week the deity, the incomprehensibleness of God, uh, of Jesus as the Lord meets humanity in love. There are many descriptions given to this incarnation. I'll read a handful. The infinite one became bone of our bones and flesh of our flesh. The prince of glory became a babe in a manger. Son of God became the Son of Man. Creator came out of the creature. He who made the world and was above the world came into the world. The Almighty One became a little child. The Immortal Son was clothed in rags of mortality. The Eternal One became a child of time. God, who made man after his image, was himself made in man's image. He whose dwelling is in the heavens was let down into the hell of this earth. He who thunders in the heavens cried in a manger. The invisible God was made visible. The God who took our flesh and dwelt in it with his divine fullness so that our flesh could become more glorious than the angels. Through that flesh, God opened up his gospel treasures by being saviour, redeemer, kinsman, elder brother and shepherd of his own. And the last one, that the son of God became the son of man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Now that's a large list. And yet it in no way captures all that is happening in the deity becoming human. It is overwhelming in its size. Joel Beek wrote in his book uh, Puritan Theology, Reformed Theology, the sheer magnitude of the incarnation is so incomprehensible. We could borrow the language of the Apostle Paul that we see it only through a glass darkly. Describing the incarnation in human language is like painting a mountain on a grain of sand. That's a fridge quote, if I ever saw one. But there is a, a difficulty to this. Because of the magnitude of the incarnation event, the language often used to describe it similar to that list that we held and what Joel uh, Beek just uh, wrote in his book, has a similar sound to that of myths, of the things like uh, that were occurring at similar times, like Greek mythology. 
the Word made flesh. Uh, Because of this, many look at the Incarnation spoken of in the Bible and in historical documents as just that mythology. Even though they may hold a belief in it, there's an edge of unreality to understanding the Incarnation. Rudolf Boltmann, a well-known German theologian, believes that the phrase word becomes flesh rings with the language of mythology. And yet, when we look at the Gospels, as we, uh, as with 1 John 1 to 3, which says, we beheld his glory, the language isn't that of myths. It's the language of testament. What is written about God made flesh in Jesus was something experienced by the Gospels, uh, by the Apostles. It was what they saw with their eyes, they heard with their ears and they felt with their hands. And it's helpful for us to remember that faith is not blind. It's not based on feelings alone. Nor, as we expect to place, do we place our whole lives on the whim of those feelings. Christian faith is built on the witness of many historical documents and people in real time across the ages. And so it is with the incarnation. The apostles, for the apostles, the miracles that they saw of healing, the power over nature, the events of Jesus' baptism when the clouds opened up and they heard a voice This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The transfiguration, Jesus lifted up in glory for a moment. This is my son again. And the resurrection, of course. But we've got to remember that this is also Jesus who is fulfilling prophecies that have spanned generations and generations. He fulfilled over 324 individual prophecies that spans thousands of years. This was enough evidence for the apostles, and it's enough evidence even for historians to say, one, that Jesus existed, but for the apostles to say, and he is Lord, that he was God come in the flesh. The testimonial quality was such that the incarnation was affirmed by the early church which led the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451 to state that Christ is one person with two distinct natures. He is both human and divine, 100% both. The Westminster Catechism says he is two whole, perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood. Uh, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? And the larger catechism, which wrote down in its question-answer forms, how is Christ exalted In his sitting at the right hand of God, the answer is Christ is exalted 
in his sitting at the right hand of God, in that as God-man, he is advanced to the highest favour with God the Father, with all fullness of joy, glory and power over all things in earth and heaven, and doth greater and def- doeth greater and defend his church and subdue their enemies, furnisheth his ministers and people with gifts and graces and maketh intercession for them. And in question 55, how does he make intercession? Christ maketh intercession by his appearance in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth, declaring his will to have it applied to all believers, answering all accusations against them and procuring for them quiet of conscience. That sounds good, doesn't it? Notwithstanding daily failings, access with boldness before the throne to the throne of grace and acceptance of their persons and services. I delight in the reality of the question and answers here, notwithstanding their daily failings. We remain in Christ and in his grace. And so we must be careful, for in the West we have a tendency to separate everything into categories of the subjective and the objective. On one side are a person's spirit, their feelings, their values, their faith and their religion, which we separate then from the other side, which is science and facts and measurable results and visible things, and we don't like it when they mesh together. To say that the things of spirit and faith and belief are real and factual and have biological, historical evidence or results. Yet, the word, who is often mistakenly held solely as an element of faith, became flesh, something tangible and real. We are not the ones to determine how the world works that we like to pretend to. It is the Lord who decides that. And we see in Hebrews 2, in speaking of Jesus who was above the angels in that position of deity and was then made lower than the angels, suffering death for us, that it was fitting in the eyes of God, for whom and through whom everything exists, that he fulfil this position. As we read scripture, I am constantly amazed about how wrong I have things in my mind, (laughs) about how the world works, about my worldview needing to be reshaped by scripture. This is one of those moments. Now, to understand Jesus' humanity, we must know something of the reason he came as a man in the first place. Why did something as miraculous or even preposterous as the incarnation take place? The answer is found in the two federal heads of humanity. Adam and Jesus. 
of this Reeves writes, Have you ever noticed that when Paul writes of Adam and Christ, he writes as if they were the only men in the world, as if no others existed? That was the big picture of humanity for Paul. It is not that humanity is a vast throng of disconnected individuals. Adam and Christ are the two men, the heads, the first fruit of the old and the new human race. Each one of us is merely a seed in one of those fruits, a member of one of their bodies, dependent for our fate, not on ourselves, but on the fruit in which we belong. When Adam sinned, we sinned in him. When he died, we died. At my birth, this is Reeves, at my birth I was born into a sinful, guilty, dead humanity. I was born into that identity, an identity I then managed to live out rather well. These two federal heads are often called the first Adam and the second Adam. And by looking at one, we not only see our own identity as Reeves stated, but we begin to see a pattern established for the second. That is Jesus. So let's quickly do that and look at the pattern of rulership, A pattern of the image of God, of being a son of God, of marriage, and finally a pattern of sin and salvation established in the first Adam and then reaffirmed uh, in greater proportion in the second. The first Adam. Adam sets a pattern of rulership. This is going to be very quick, by the way. He sets a pattern of rulership in that in creation He was crowned ruler over all. He had dominion over the earth. We see in Genesis 1, 21, 28 even. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we go to the second Adam, to Jesus. Following that pattern, we see in Philippians 2 that Jesus will be crowned not simply over the earth, but king of all. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God also exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Furthermore, we see that Adam's crown that he inherited at creation, or that was given to him in grace, is thrown off or broken at that point where sin enters the world, when he becomes bound to death. And yet in Hebrews, it says that Christ gained his crown through suffering that death. Adam was created in the image of God. 
In Genesis 1.27, God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. While Jesus is, as we know from Hebrews 1.3-6, he is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. Adam is called the son of God. From Luke, when you look at the genealogy, thank you, my mind went blank for a moment. Son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Jesus, as we know, is not a son of God, but the son of God, from which Adam was modelled after. And for. And in marriage, Adam's bride, Eve, was created when he slept a deep sleep. A wound was opened in his side even before the fall, which is astounding. In the Garden of Eden, everything is perfect. Adam lays down, a wound is created in his side, and out of it is taken a bone to create Eve. While Jesus' bride, the church, is created from a wound in Jesus' side while he slept the deep sleep of death. Calvin writes, and I delight in this, in this we see a true resemblance of our union with the Son of God. In this, as in many other things, Adam was a figure of him that was to come. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross, in order to which his side was opened, and there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it for himself. But moreover, Jesus is more than a pattern of Adam. He's a solution to Adam. He is the salvation from Adam. For in Adam, all the human race fell in sin. And his sons bear his fallen likeness and his image. When he fell, we fell, as we read earlier. Now, second Estras, which is from the Apocrypha. Has anyone read the Apocrypha here? No? bits of it, yeah. It's actually, it's worth reading. Um, the early reformers loved reading the Apocrypha. It's got, you, you, it's not the Bible, so you need to be careful, but uh, there's still good things in there. Second Astras from 7, chapter 7, verse 118. O Adam, what have you done? For though, for though it was you who sinned, the fall was not yours alone but ours also who are your descendants. And then we see the same idea replicated and uh, in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, death uh, and death came through sin. And so death spread to all because all have sinned. 
But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now, I must admit that when I began to wrestle for the first time with federal headship years ago, that Adam and in turn Jesus represented more than just their individual selves, but me as well and all of humanity, I found, like many, that it was a difficult pill to swallow. In a sermon I preached years ago, I likened it to receiving a speeding ticket in the mail. It's addressed to you, but it says clearly that it was your father that did the speeding, but you have to pay the bill. There is a sense of unrighteousness there, that it's unfair, as my six-year-old daughter would tell me, that we would have to pay the penalty for somebody else's doing. At birth, we are given our identity And in federal headship, that identity is the identity of Adam, sinner. Not because you have personally done anything yet, but by merit of being born in his line. How does your heart respond to that? Do you cry out, that's not fair? Yet something we must understand in this Western culture of ours, of which we're all a part of, no matter how much we think we may be outside of that box, is that there is a hyper-individualistic culture here. I am responsible for me, you are responsible for you, and we may help one another from time to time, but we're certainly not responsible for one another. There is a distinct line that remains between us and our identities. But lots of the world doesn't actually work this way. Many honour-shame cultures often see one another as a part of a greater family rather than an individual. Certainly biblical thinking also follows a similar thinking. A quick reading of Deuteronomy reveals a deep concern and even a commandment given to the Israelites to not just be responsible for their holiness, but the holiness of the nation, of one another. If you see your brothers sinning or your sisters sinning, it is your responsibility to bring them back, lest you all be judged. Now, despite, uh, let me forget this. 
Not only that, but if we do not, if we seek to try and throw away this idea or understanding of federal headship, we also throw away the very application of the gospel, how it then applies to us. Despite our Western difficulty with the idea of federal headship, it is the way that God has made the world. This is another one of those worldview-shattering elements that the uh, scripture brings to us. It's how the world operates, and it can't be changed, no matter how much or how many times we deny it. As we read in Hebrews, God saw it fitting. The creator of all things the one that still sustains and maintains the boundaries of all of creation, saw that it was fitting that Christ would suffer death, not just for himself or for one other person, but for everyone, that he would be another head. And what the the scripture says in Hebrews is that he becomes the captain of our salvation the first fruits of humanity, to lead the rest of us, to lead all believers into salvation. When we throw away this understanding of federal headship, because we seek to avoid the sin of Adam and being held accountable for what seems like somebody else's action of an inherent identity, then we likewise throw away the only salvation we have. For it's only by the hedge, this headship arrangement that we are not just condemned by one man, but saved by one man. In this way, we gain all the blessings that are in Christ and not watered down, one man dying for all thinly spread across humanity, but we inherit all of his richness and his blessings in fullness. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through one human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through one human being, through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Equally, federal headship is the reason why Jesus had to become a man in that first place rather than saving us simply remaining as deity. Because now we needed a new identity as humanity. Someone to take the place of the first Adam, to fulfil all the righteous requirements that he failed, to give us a second head, a second identity to be able to step into to be able to escape that Adam's old humanity. And escaping, in escaping the identity and all the curses brought on by the old Adam, we inherit the identity of the second one. As we saw in looking quickly at the patterns set between the first Adam and the second, 
This means trading in a broken and discarded crown for one of greater value. We are told that in the new world we will be rulers even above the angels over the new creation. Hebrews says, I read that, additionally, the image of God that we bear as humanity is cleansed of impurity in Christ. He is the perfect human, the perfect us, so that when we step into him, we gain perfect humanity. Additionally, the image of God that we bear as humans is cleansed of impurity. Rather, it's like we become a new mirror rather than a tarnished one, able to perfectly reflect the image of God. And in fact, become, as we see in the next point, become the sons of God. No longer as Adam was a son of God. The things that we have in Christ are so much better than what we had in Adam, not just because of his fall, but better even than in creation uh, in the first place. Because we don't just become a son because of creation, uh, one of the sons. We come into his sonship, the son. Which brings us then to another question. Just how human was Jesus? What does it really mean that the word became flesh? The early church and even the church today still faces many heresies on this point. Uh, The early church faced docetism, which uh, comes from the Greek word dokin. I looked this up. I don't know Greek really well. Um, so I don't get a fat head while standing up here. Yeah, which means to seem. Was This was the belief that Jesus did not really have a physical body. He didn't really have a true human nature. He only seemed to have a body, but in reality was a phantom sort of being. He pretended to eat, to drink to sleep, to be human in front of the apostles, his disciples. But he wasn't really human. Uh, In John 2, verse 7, you can see the the seriousness, actually, of which how scripture holds that we get the identity of Christ correct. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Not a title you want. Another of the heresies was, uh, I struggle to pronounce this one, monophysite. And it states that Jesus didn't have two natures, deity and humanity. He only had one. This nature that he had was not truly divine nor truly human, but a mixture of the two. I think it's the struggle with trying to say that he's 100% God and 100% man and just saying, well, there has to be some math there 
He must be 50% of both, 70-30. This belief, though, Sproul, um, R.C. Sproul, believes still resides within the church. It's quite popular. Whenever there is a tendency in allowing the human nature of Jesus and the limitations then that come with being human, uh, not being able to see and know all, Jesus said at one stage, I don't know when I'm coming back. Um, When there is a, a difficulty with grasping that and saying that he is limited as a human is limited, people want to throw that away and say, no, he's more deity than he was human, to let that humanity fade from him, is still very present now. And Gregory of uh, Nazanus held that Jesus was body, uh, a human body alone, but retained a divine mind. Whatever the heresy is, or the reason for it, The issue that always arises is this. What Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. What Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. If Jesus was truly to play the perfect role of the second Adam that would redeem humanity in our fullness, in all that we were created to be, and it was a good creation then he had to represent that humanity perfectly, fully and completely, leaving nothing out. Should any aspect not be man, then in the eyes of God, he couldn't have redeemed that aspect of us. So when we read that Jesus became flesh, we cannot read it in parts, that he became partly flesh or certain body parts became flesh his body but not his mind that he had no limitations but the whole human package while retaining his full deity Beek wrote he took on our feet our legs our chest, our arms, our mouth, our hair, our eyes, our ears. His hands were roughened by the wood of the carpenter's shop. His back was torn by the lash of the scourge. He was truly human. When he died, he was truly dead. His pulse stopped and his brain activity ceased. When he rose from the dead, his physical body rose to new life. And he spoke. People touched him. He ate fish. Jesus was fully human. Sometimes when reading the Bible, maybe it comes from too many times reading kids' books these days. But earlier, reading too many fantasy books as a child, I always think about biblical times as a little ethereal, like dreams. Maybe it's that myth mentality seeping in. But he is as real as we are real now. 
He had skin blemishes like we have skin blemishes. He would have grown sick at times. Uh, there's a kid's song by, by a band from Sovereign Grace called Theology, which just speaks about how he would have had to have learnt to tie his shoes or his sandals. I like that we're amazed that he ate fish. That seems to come up so often when talking about the humanity of Jesus. He ate fish as a resurrected man. Just like us. The gospel is not concerned simply with the ideas, uh, with ideas, but with facts and objects, with physics and biology and history. It's in this way because we are this way. We don't need salvation from poor ideology alone, but from the very real threat of death that binds us physically and biologically. And it's from that death that we place our faith in Christ to escape and which we are rescued in him. We don't need to fear death any longer because where is he as a man but now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high having had victory over death for us, ushering away, defeating death, creating a path for us, uh, becoming the path for us to enter into a new life. So we don't need to fear any longer things like cancer, like car crashes or pandemics, whatever it is that comes our way. We may be wise in how we conduct ourselves in those situations and struck still with sadness at the loss of people, at the loss that we ourselves endure. But when fear knocks on our door, the fear of an end, we can turn to Christ and know that he, in his humanity, as a man, has defeated death on our behalf. There's no part of us that is no longer redeemed for the kingdom through the coming of Jesus as a man and for that we have much to rejoice. Let's pray and then I'll open for questions. Heavenly Father, we give thanks Lord, if there's anything that has stood out this morning uh, in the minds of those here, Lord, I give thanks for it and pray that you would build it up. Lord, grow us in our depth and our understanding. Now, Father, in, in honesty, there are times where I read things like this and it stays still and lifeless on the page. And yet what we are reading about is the coming of life, of being set free from death, of deity becoming humanity for us, of love that, Lord, eclipses everything that we could understand. 
And perhaps it's your size, Lord. Perhaps that we dif- it's difficult to grasp, to see. Perhaps it's our blindness. But I pray that in your spirit you would open our eyes. Father, that uh, this would be more than an understanding. But life and joy and a way for us to be able to live in this world. Heavenly Father, I give thanks that your gospel is not just a fix to the way in which we think, but it's a way in which we live. It affects what we do all day. I pray that only becomes more and more real, Lord, as we read your word, but as we travel through life, as we encounter the things of fear that death still throws our way, and as we claim uh, Jesus Christ, your son, as our captain of salvation, as our federal head, as our new identity. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for sending your Son that we might live. In Jesus' name, amen.